Hello and welcome to episode 347 of the Crate and Crowbar, a PC gaming podcast being recorded on the 5th of November 2020, the most explodey night of the year here in the UK, as immortalised in that famous rhyme, remember, remember, Dr. Dre, it's November, by the way. I'm Marsh Davis, <laughs> and I'm joined tonight wow. to celebrate the ritual burning of papist conspirators and also PC games by... Kevin McLeod's dark doppelganger, Graham Smith. Hello. Mirror Universe Bob the Builder, Tom Francis. Hello. And the Lawrence Llewellyn Bowen of hell, <laughs> Alex Wiltshire. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> so uh, did, did anything, anything happen this week? I, I, feel like it was, I feel like it was a pretty quiet week. No, no global events really worth mentioning. <laughs> Just everybody quietly getting on with their own thing. Last thing I knew, it was the last pod I was on. Do you just go to sleep afterwards? <laughs> <laughs> just hibernate between pods. Understandable. <laughs> what is there if if one is not podding? <laughs> I do actually. I I do know the answer though. What is that? Teardown is what happens between poddings. Yeah. <laughs> what is teardown? Would you like to explain for the for the audience, Alex? <laughs> uh, teardown is a very good game that involves. Um, Breaking in, well, breaking stuff, stealing stuff, uh, breaking stuff in order to steal, stealing stuff in order to break, and generally <laughs> having a nice time. Uh, it's a it's a, a cool game um, that came out uh, last week uh, by Tuxedo Labs. Um, it uh, is set in a kind of voxel world um, where everything is physicsy and most, almost anything can be broken. I think everything except for the bedrock can be broken. There are vehicles in it. Uh, you have, um, uh, things that break stuff. So you can have little bombs. Uh, you can have a, a sledgehammer, uh, you can burn stuff. It's all very, very, very physicsy. Um, and the object of the game in general is, uh, to steal things, uh, that are split out across a large area of level, which could be um, warehouses or a, a large house or um, a, a marina. Um, and you have to figure out how to steal these things in such a way that um, uh, you can can steal them all within like a minute um, because once you start stealing them, a time will go down. I will explain it all better as we go along, but um, that was actually that was really quite well explained. <laughs> <laughs> Just end the pod there. We're done. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it's quite good. The end. Yeah. <laughs> all the takes we need. Everyone can imagine that game so clearly now that they can just play it in their head and they already know how good it is. <laughs> <laughs> I think the the coolest thing about it, and it's something that um, Tom and and Graham actually Graham. Dunn wrote a review on RPG, RPG, well, we <laughs> on, uh, of the game, um, in which he uh, sort of mentioned that um, that one of his delights in the game is um, the watching uh, friends like us uh, uh, r- r- doing runs in the same levels that he's trying, and it, it is one of those games where solutions uh, are very loose and solutions can be very creative. So it's really exciting to see what other people do. It's, it's I, a I, game that... Sorry. No, go on. Go ahead. 
that was stalemate. Well, I, think, I think I was going to reference something that you'd said, actually, um, off pod, where I think you compared it to Opus Magnum. Yeah. Um, and it has that similar rhythm to it. And yeah, this similar thing of you're creating these solutions which are creative, that feel like your own, that you can feel quite proud of, even when it turns out that they're quite basic compared to other, other people's <laughs> solutions. Like there's a, there's a later mission that I haven't even got to yet that involves stealing cars. I've done an earlier mission. I think we've all done an earlier mission that involves stealing a certain number of cars and dumping them in, in water. There's a later mission that's the thing, but the cars are in different places, including some of them being on like the third story of a building. And someone completed this level by in places destroying almost the entire building except the little bit of the floor that the car was on in the third story <laughs> so that when they hit the timer during their 60 second run they could run underneath that car on the ground look up and fire a shotgun into the ground in order to make the car fall down three stories to the ground <laughs> and they could get in it and immediately drive away um, and there's a kind of ingenuity to that that's just so fun to watch and see how other people did it relative to your own performance and there are revelations as well. Um, maybe we should stick a spoiler sort of marker in here because um, there was one on the stealing cars level. Oh, well, yeah. when I when I saw Graham's solution to it, <laughs> there was a revelation. Like, what you can do that? <laughs> it was so good. Yeah, that that was yeah, that was, that was that was a real victory. I mean, I don't know if it really counts as a spoiler because it's. It's just a, a thing that's in the level that we just didn't see for whatever reason. Uh, <laughs> We're giving a spoiler warning and we haven't actually said what it is. <laughs> yeah, I did actually think, yeah, yeah worst spoiler because I haven't said... Okay, so now the spoiler starts. Morning for spoiler. Uh, so um, the object of uh, this stealing cars mission is to dump uh, six cars to get 100% uh, into bodies of water. And you are basically on an island, which means that there's water all around you. And obviously, my first thought was that you just have to drive the, all of the cars to the very edge of the island to dump them. Uh, what Graham noticed is that there's a pond in the middle of the level, very conveniently placed, which is also next to the getaway van that you'll be escaping in. Uh, and I never saw it for what it was, which was a body of water. I just, you know, of course, the logical thing is that, of course, you can dump a car into it. It's not the only body of water as well, because... It felt like a genius moment to discover that body of water while I was playing that level and be able to complete it that way. Um, but then 15 minutes later, I was watching someone else stream the game and there are just like two other bodies of water in really convenient place in the middle of that <laughs> level that I just never saw at all. And so I spent like an hour grinding out my solution to it when I could yeah. have probably shaved 10 seconds off my time. I think it's <laughs> I probably know. worth saying that this level takes place at, in the dark. It's at night. And so like there are lights around the place, <laughs> but there are certain, like the water is maybe a, a little bit obscured to excuse yeah. myself. Well, I don't know. I mean, I did, I realized when I went back to that level that I had been driving intentionally driving around the swimming pool. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, the, the uh, swimming yeah. pool's empty. Cool I thought do. the swimming pool's empty. One of them is. Oh, maybe. Oh, maybe hmm. there's, there's two swimming pools and there's oh. also a hot tub as well as, as the pond. God so, yeah. There's a cool trick the game does in general, which is that often the parameters of the problem are not what you think they are. And there's some uh, little... 
uh, thing you need to need to grasp to, to make the problem way easier for yourself. And they introduced that really early on in, in some in a way that you kind of can't really miss, which is the uh, the marina level where uh, you are trying to steal some things from some boats, and one of the boats is just on dry land and attached to a trailer. Um, and the trailer is, you know, on a car that you can just get in and drive. Uh, so, you know, it takes you about a second to realize, like, oh, I could just drive this somewhere. I can just move this to where I want. And then, of course, another one is on a large boat that is just in the sea, and you can just drive the boat itself to where you want it, but it's enormous and slow. Another one is like a, a rowboat that's suspended in a, um, uh, in a building that you can sort of cut down and get into the water, but it's just doesn't have any oars or anything. It's just a boat with no propellant, so you have to sort of figure out if you're going to drag it across the water or pick it up with a crane and stuff like that. And so, and all of this you can do before you trigger any alarms. The alarms are when you take a certain object inside the boat. And so figuring out what you can do without tripping the alarm is kind of a puzzle in itself. It's like the first thing you've got to figure out is what can I do that doesn't trigger the, the countdown? And uh, on some levels, that's an enormous amount. You can rearrange the entire puzzle to your liking before you even start on, okay, and then what's my route between these things? And so watching... Everybody do that marina mission. Um, I think we all had uh, fairly different solutions and just deciding like, I can move all, almost all of these elements, but just where do I want them? Um, it's really fun to see everyone's different takes on that. I was, um, when, when you've, when, uh, so, so, so Tom, you've, you've kind of been following this game quite closely and, and, you know, it was quite like uh, the developer explained how, what the fundamental game was quite early on. And I must admit, while I really liked the videos, the way how they showed the physics systems and the way that the world would be so reactive to your actions in it, I really liked that. But I wasn't that excited, I must admit, by what the game was meant to be, which was, you know, build your path in order to steal a number of things within a time limit. I thought that that I don't know. I wasn't very grabbed by it. I was totally wrong. <laughs> like it's a really, really open really exciting really um variety filled game like the as you said the the levels are so full of little details and you have so many tools um and then but then with those tools creative solutions to apply to the world that actually um you know it, that 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 simple task of creating an efficient route um actually Graham, you described a really cool thing, which is, you know, these um, desire path uh, uh, thing, you know, where those desire paths that you get across um, greens, you know, where people have been taking shortcuts. So you're building shortcuts yourself in this game. Um, like I, that is really fun. And I was just wrong not to pick that up from the, from the videos. I, I mentioned the desire paths in the review I wrote of the game, but I also sort of scornfully said that if you listen to podcasts, especially podcasts about design you will eventually hear about desire paths because it's the kind of kind of little tidbit that's beloved by podcasts like 99 percent invisible and stuff like that and i'm just realizing that yeah there are people listening to this right now <laughs> learning about desire paths from us yeah i think alex you're saying that you know just watching the videos and hearing the concept you didn't quite uh you know come to life in your mind and i think if it was just like that lee chemicals area uh, the first kind of mission you do on that that involves tripping alarms uh, is what I think the game looked like in its earlier stages, which was just you kind of bore through walls and you break down pipes and you make ramps and then you just make a really streamlined route between some fixed points in the level and that's it. And yeah. just get, doing that better and better and better 
I think wouldn't be that exciting. It would be a, a game for a certain kind of audience, especially like speedrunners, obviously. Um, and it would still have a bit of the Opus Magnum stuff, but it would be, I don't think you'd be sort of blowing your mind with new revelations and things with when you thought about the puzzle more. Um, and actually the final game, I think is a lot more about vehicles and about mobile elements and uh, has a lot more kind of interesting custom setups that, that encourage you to like change the way you're thinking about the whole space and rearrange things and pull off clever things. Uh, extracting safes is really fun. Uh, the fact that, you know, the safes that you have to get out of these levels are too heavy to carry. And so you have to figure out if you can get them onto a vehicle somehow, but they're not sort of in convenient places for that. And so um, basically that, that trick you were talking about with the car, Graham, of <laughs> destroying almost all the rest of the building so it can just be dropped down. You can do that with a safe. Um, <laughs> but then what if there are two safes? How are you going to get them both out with only one vehicle and not enough time to make two trips? And yeah, stuff like that is... is engages so much more of your brain than I think that it looked like it would. Yeah, I thought at first that it was going to be more like a speedrunning or like a racing game like experience. And I'm never interested in just improving times, really. Um, and so that this is much more of a puzzle game is it's what exactly why I'm interested in it, I think. Um, although I have found that I've been still surprised that I've been compelled to do the optional objectives because that's another thing. I will take the easiest route through every part <laughs> of my life, including video games. And if there is, <laughs> if, I, if I can complete a level by doing three things rather than six, I would normally in most games just do the three and move on. Um, but it's compelling enough trying to work out how to manipulate and change the space that I want to push myself in order to get all six or all eight, whatever it is on a particular level. Yeah. It's funny, actually, that it it's not that interested in, you know, it's not a game that records your times. I don't think. There's nowhere that it records your best time on a level. Like, you know, the, the one where you've, I think actually would probably record the time left you have on the, on the, on the clock. It doesn't record any of that anywhere that I know. It it notes it on the, at the end mission screen, and that's it. It's actually it, it has the you know it it just it seems to be very confident that it knows that it's just exciting and interesting in the player's minds, and you don't really need all that supporting structure to to kind of encourage another playthrough. Yeah, I guess uh, we should say it's early access, so it's possible some of that stuff will come later. Um, but it's interesting to how it handles optional objectives because up until for me when there's optional objectives in a game there's kind of two kinds there's there's the kind where it's like if you're really good and you're really dedicated and you really are serious about this game and you're the right kind of player then maybe you want to go for this and that's like getting ghost rating and dishonored and stuff like that um and i don't do those and there's another kind of optional objective that's basically you ought to do this like if you're not doing this you're not really engaging um and that's true. I think into the breach, like into the breaches objectives, um, all of the interesting ones are optional. The the only prime objective ever is just survive. And so if you're not doing the optional objectives, you're kind of not engaging with the game. And so this so far, it's been like every time it gives me an optional objective, if it's you know you've got to get three, but you can get six, uh, I'm always like, okay, I've got to get six. And I've just hit my limit with that now. <laughs> <There's> a, <laughs> the current one I'm on is like you've got to steal eight paintings. And for the longest time, it looked like there's, I could only possibly do five. And, um, oh, sorry, you don't have to steal anything. You have to steal four, I think. Or maybe it's even three. Um, and for the longest time, five seemed seemed the most I could do. And then I figured out a way to do six. But when you 
do that and you sort of rethink your route and you you come up with a new strategy and you realize you can take a detour and you can park a car here and be ready to take a do a breakneck chase um uh under time pressure to get to this last one you finally put it off in like 0.6 seconds spare at that point you could not be more cosmically certain that it cannot be done better <laughs> like, there's no way you get two other paintings on top of that so that's either i, I mean i'm curious we don't know for sure that that's the game doesn't tell you it's possible, right? It doesn't say you can get all eight. It just says there are eight. Get as many as you can. And it's it's perfectly legit to have a game where it's not possible to get all eight. And it's just about which ones are the most convenient to get and what kind of cluster and and what's the most you can get. I suspect it probably is possible because of because of those secret lakes and stuff on the, the car sinking level. There might be some kind of revelation about that. Like, to my mind, there's no way to move any of these paintings without tripping up the arm, but I might be wrong about that. Maybe there's some way you can, or maybe there's, there maybe there's a fucking helicopter on the level somewhere. <laughs> I don't know. You take the wall to, you know, just pile up bits of wall and all next to each other. I mean, I actually tried that. Like, you can, because <laughs> everything is destructible. So whatever the thing is wired to, you can just mine that entire thing out. But yeah. as soon as it's disconnected from the ground, the alarm goes off. So it's, oh. I think it's sort of, it proposes that there's some kind of wire or something going in um, somewhere. Yeah. One thing I've been slightly uh, put off by m maybe is uh, one note of caution while it's in early access is that there is only one way uh, to save uh, a level mid progress, which is a, a single quick save slot. And I quite like the fact that it's a single quick save slot because it does mean that you have to sort of live with your mistakes. And as Graham uh, uh, notes in his review, you, your final solution ends up being built on the carcasses of all your other failed solutions. <laughs> yeah. And that's, yeah. that's, that's something really pleasing about that. But at the same time, it doesn't allow you to load that quick save once you start a new session of the game. So you can't stop mid-solution, go away, and then come back to the game later, and then come back to the, the your half-finished solution. Um, which is a bit of a problem because I, I find that, especially if you're if you're going for the long shot of setting up, uh, stealing all eight paintings or something like that, that that's probably going to take you well more than an hour, uh, I would imagine, <laughs> maybe several hours to really think it through and execute it, and I um, I don't really have that kind of space for uh, a single session of that length in my life. You can get around it by moving this the the saved file to a temporary folder then moving it back uh after you've quick saved uh again okay um but it's it's a bit of a faff um so i'm hoping that all that whole save system will change but i also don't want it to change so much that it gives you like a really liberal um set of saves to return to yeah i agree i was going to say also that that um if it the setting up is just as fun as the solution, you know. Oh yeah, there's a, like, it's, it's the most fun part, I think. Yeah, hmm. like the those carcasses, you know, the killing the carcasses is um, definitely really good. My um, like uh, really early on in the game, there is a um, uh, there's a car that's on the back of a very large fishing boat. And I had a very long and very enjoyable time <laughs> trying to get it off the back of the the shipping the the, the fishing boat. Like <laughs> yeah. I, my solution was the most inelegant, the worst, very very messy. Um, uh, but I did it, and I was really pleased. And it was surrounded by these broken uh, kind of forklifts, um, kind of cranes, 
uh, the the fishing boat was wrecked by the end of this. You know, <laughs> everything it was just all surrounded with a path that I could just drive around it. You know, it was it was so good, and just be able to pass all that stuff. This kind of scene of destruction that that Iron enacted um, semi successfully or successfully enough was was just so good. I really like how it. Um it exposes a massive flaw in my personality, which is that um, uh, uh, I get stuck on a solution. And because I've expended my precious planks um, in building, for example, like this amazing, I spent like half an hour building this tottering tower out of garden furniture (laughs) and, and then stapling it together with planks so that I have this perfect ramp from one part of the level to another. Then I realized that actually I shouldn't do that at all. I should start start the level basically on the point that I built the ramp to and then come all the way around the level to the the place I was trying to ramp from. So the the ramp was completely superfluous, but I'd, you know, I'd sunk my plank fallacy by that point. (laughs) (laughs) Sunk plank fallacy. (laughs) I I persisted with that completely stupid solution for ages, pig-headedly just uh, pointlessly wasting time on it before then just wrecking it in fury. There's a a unique and particularly intense for me feeling that uh, of seeing something really valuable, important get get badly damaged but not destroyed. <laughs> and so, uh, I don't know if you, you guys remember Galaxy Quest. There's a scene where like they're coming out in a in a Starship Enterprise, basically type ship, but the guy flying it doesn't know how to fly it, and it just kind of veers to the left and it kind of scrapes against the hangar, and just all of everyone watching in the film, but also me on my couch, are absolutely contorted <laughs> and like stressed and like, oh god, oh god, and Teardown absolutely has that. Like multiple times, I've been carefully steering out I, I was towing that boat that i mentioned that's, that's already hooked up to a trailer and realizing like oh i can actually i can turn pretty sharply on this this is great and then i realize oh if you turn too sharply with a towed load your your back of your car just crunches into it <laughs> <laughs> just like mangles in front of the boat like oh god no 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 <laughs> and there's that one car um in the mission where you got to dunk them all in the water there's a car that is uh in disrepair it's it doesn't have any wheels uh, it's just like on a, oh, yeah, on a crank yeah. thing <laughs> and the only thing i could i could figure out to, to kind of get it out of there was i just used like a jcb digger thing with like a scoop arm and i just kind of like hugged it with that and it just absolutely mangled it it just got crushed and crushed <laughs> and i kept slipping out as well so i had to keep picking up the wreckage that i just just like half destroyed and scoop it up and then try and like drop it onto something else <laughs> and by the end of it it was like there's four voxels left of this car but technically it went in the water so <laughs> <I wouldn't. laughs> Yeah. You're welcome, luxury car smuggler. <laughs> Drop this smoking husk off. Um, there's there's one thing about it that I'm not so sure about, um, which is the the way the tools unlock. Um, so at the start of the game, you have access to um, uh, a sledgehammer, which can break wood, but not metal, um, and not brick. Um, you have um, a blowtorch, which can set light to stuff. Um, and oh, you have some spray paint. Um, and that's it, I think. Is that right? At the start of the game? I think so. And then as you as you succeed at um, objectives, whether main or um, supplementary, they will go towards a count, um, which will then unlock stuff as you as you play on. Um, I... So you, you've played the first level um, and designed your solution for the tools you have at, at, at hand. And you can feel good about that, like you, you feel, do feel good about it. But then I felt once I'd you know, unlocked 
the shotgun, uh, the planks, and all these other really useful, really great tools. Um, the blow, t- the, this um, blowtorch thing that can actually, um, actually, yeah, that wasn't unlocked at the start, which could cut through metal, the blowtorch. Um, uh, that changes what the solution you would have given to the earlier uh, missions. And that feels, felt to me a little bit, cheap's the wrong word. It's, I just felt like, ah, uh, if only I'd had that stuff, I'd have done something better. My solution that I had now feels a bit crap because I would have done that now. Um, and yeah, I, I don't know. I, 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 Isn't that incentive to return to those yeah, battles and try again? I think I, it, it should be. I'm not feeling that, but it should be. Mm, um, and I, right. I think that's more to do with me. Um, I also feel that like I, it is making me want to do more as, you know, get more objectives done because I'll get the next toy. So there's that successful element to it as well. But I don't know. I just feel like shortchanged a little bit because I didn't have this great toy to use in the earlier level. I think this is probably just me. How would you feel if uh, when you replayed earlier levels, you were set back to whatever tool set you had at the time? I think that that, that's what I would have preferred. Yes. Feels, I think that might be quite arbitrary, but... Uh, I'm very interested in this question because and I'd like to know how everyone else feels about it because I have to make this decision for our game. Like, um, It's a game where you're unlocking new abilities and new wizards and stuff throughout the course of the campaign, and I want to let you replay old missions. And to be honest, the easiest way for us to do it is just let you play them with whatever you have right now. You can have, With all the new wizards you've acquired and all the new abilities and stuff. Um, and I've been wondering, do we also need the ability to go back and sort of reset yourself to what you had back when you first played it yeah i think the the upgrades are a bigger problem to me rather than just the unlocks of the items themselves i think it's um look because you can explore future levels and find items on them that give you money so like when you're exploring the mansion for example you're finding caviar and expensive food mixers and stuff like that that just convert into money the second you pick them up and then you can use that money back at hq the kind of uh, air we haven't really talked about it but the area in between missions which is like your warehouse slash workshop i think we haven't really spoken about the story stuff at all where you're a down on your luck demolitions expert getting drawn into a cd underworld of illegal construction and petty corporate espionage i guess <laughs> like extremely petty emails that come in this this strange rivalry um but yeah as you explore those levels particularly the mansion you find expensive items you can use that money to then upgrade all your tools including just increasing the quantity so like the number of shots you get with the shotgun and that makes an enormous difference and so like i don't mind the incentive to go back to earlier levels and replay them with the tools i've got now to see if i can get a better time but i sort of feel like i'm incentivized to go back to earlier levels and just walk around them to try and find junk in cupboards so that in future levels i can have you know um more pipe bombs or whatever i quite like having a reason to explore though because some some of the stuff is hidden in quite good places like voids in between rooms in a house where actually if you look at that room and that room there's that should be bigger so you smash through the wall and there's this void where there's hidden you know like a quite an expensive trinket i haven't i haven't gone seeking out anything but i've it's um and i've not felt particularly inhibited uh looking at the upgrade screen 
so I, I feel like the, the pace at which stuff unlocks by you just stumbling across things, and uh, that seems to be a, a decent pace, not frustrating in any way. But it's interesting. Had If you'd asked me this question, I would have said that actually I, I, I like the idea that uh, the these upgrades and extra tools incentivize you to go back and uh, perfect levels or improve your times on them. But I haven't done that. So yeah. <laughs> I guess that's yeah. I, the thing that does incentivize me to go back is is missing out on the on the on the optional objectives and thinking hmm maybe I could have improved that and then going back. But yeah, it's interesting. Getting a better time on stuff isn't uh, isn't something that I'm interested in of itself. And the fact that is that you return to the same environments again and again um, with different objectives in them. So it's it's not like I miss those environments. Yeah. Uh, there's always going to be another level coming up that has that will let me at it again with my new tool set. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wasn't um, I wasn't wildly excited about a lot of these upgrades at first, and then I got the ability to have wider planks. <laughs> now that's where all my money's <laughs> yeah. going. I just want the widest possible planks. I want them to be like five <laughs> meters wide, if possible. <laughs> all my solutions are very plank based. <laughs> But like the planks, like that's an example of what I was trying to sort of get at, which is they're so powerful that they actually negate all of the creative puzzle solving that you did in the early ones because you didn't have planks. Mm. Yeah. I guess there's those big pipes that like when you knock them down on the, the Lee Chemicals level, those make like a, such a big ramp that I think to do that with planks would be difficult. Unless, of course, I haven't upgraded plank length. <laughs> Who knows what, what, what dizzy oh, heights are there. <laughs> I've got max plank, not the physicist. <laughs> but the, uh... It's ironic yeah, that plank I, length I, is I variable. <laughs> <laughs> I, su <laughs> I suspect there's, uh, I, I haven't seen any actually kind of like pro plank use videos yet where people have built, you know, in incredibly elaborate, Meccano structures out of planks, but uh, I imagine they're out there waiting. Yeah, the planks have a weird like property where, like, if they're sticking out, sort of that they're you know attached to something at one end but free on the other end, but they're sort of poking up into the air. They have this strange like bounciness, as if they're sort of like glued to the floor with rubber, and you, it's it's kind of hard to work with. Yeah, there's a strange elastic elasticity to the way that they attach to things as well. So, I the the, the physics in the game, I mean, obviously it's a technical fucking marvel, but naturally I'll still find something to grope about. <laughs> um, so, it's quite easy to to twist a plank such that it cannot be untwisted mm. and then it has this weird sort of twanging elastic quality where it sort of pivots very strangely on its attached end. And yeah, in fact, it's not really doesn't necessarily make obvious sense that planks are basically uh, like attachable in, a, in such a way that you can <laughs> yeah. use them to tow things. Um, yeah, I also find, uh, I have to say, I, I, I enjoy the levels where there's a lot of driving a lot less uh, than the, the, the ones where you just run around, or at least driving on any surface other than tarmac, because yeah. uh, the physics interaction between the cars and, say, something as trivial as grass uh, <laughs> throws up quite a lot of variables that just uh, can just throw off a complete run because for some reason you just stop dead or or twist mm. off uh, your route for no obvious reason. Uh, that can be that can be pretty frustrating. Um, yeah, I've rage quit the game a couple of times. Of that. <laughs> <laughs> there there are lots of little things like that. I have had I've had problems with the grass as well, but there's also just 
I can't work out of just, is every object in this world really light? Because you're able to pick up and throw objects <laughs> an incredible distance, which is fantastic. <laughs> yeah. But I've also, like, there's a, there's a level quite early on where you have to destroy a water tower. And so I took bombs to the water tower, just made out of red brick, thinking that if I destroy two-thirds, three-quarters of the bottom floor, then this thing's going to topple and fall over because it's not got anything to support the the weight above it. That turned out not to happen. The building yeah. was still standing. Um, and then I went upstairs in that building because you really you only have to lower its height by a certain amount, like 20 feet or something like that. So technically, you only have to remove the top. And so I blew a, a ring all the way around the tower and couldn't it seemed to be completely destroyed and the top part was just floating now because i destroyed all the walls and then i realized there was a single like like pixel wide (laughs) piece of glass that was supporting the entire tower (laughs) above it okay fine take a sledgehammer to that destroy that the tower above then just fell down the three feet gap I had made and landed atop the tower that was below it <laughs> and then just sat there. Like there was no no destructive physics quality to this where it it you know the the force of it falling caused it to start to smash apart and smash apart the bit below and therefore the whole tower crumbled. It just was like, oh no, I basically achieved next yeah. to nothing but used all my resources <laughs> in the process. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think every every voxel in the game has infinite tensile strength, basically, uh, if it's inert in the environment. I think the only things that can damage it are you and uh, the velo- other objects being projected at it at a velocity. Otherwise, you know, you can, like you say, you can sit any any amount of weight upon a single pixel, and then that'll be absolutely fine. It's uh, yeah, I I think that I think that one of the one of the things that's probably set up the expectation for things to be a bit more reactive is that early level where you've got to destroy um, like a, a, a house that's been built on the end of marina so it's on stilts above water mm. and you've got to you've got to basically destroy all of that um, and my solution which I'm sure is the same as everybody else's was just to destroy all the struts that some holding it up and um, and it falls into the water quite nicely uh, but that was the only time I've ever had a building fall down nicely like that it, as that, if it had actually been built with that in mind that wasn't my solution my solution was just to drive a boat directly into it <laughs> <laughs> got the job done so elegant <laughs> have you guys got to the uh, lighthouse level no no as, uh, uh, it's it's a it's a lovely little island and it has a lighthouse on it but i i spent quite a long time uh, detonating that and then yanking it over so that it fell into other buildings so there is there is some sort of uh you know big physics payoff with uh destroying buildings wholesale yay <laughs> <laughs> um about the story and there's I, well there's quite a few things about it there's quite a lot of tom francisness yeah Franc- <laughs> franciscan Franc- franciscanness about it well How's i was wondering if structurally it is identical to gunplay yes story. exactly it has <laughs> yeah. the same feel it really it's not, does it's not it's it's nowhere near as funny as yeah. as as you're writing tom obviously but um oh, thank you uh, <laughs> but there's, there's it's the same sort of setup of you being hired by somebody who then then get your victim for that crime then hires you right, to, to yeah, victimize yeah. the person who hired you and so forth. 
this is this is making sense now because uh, Dennis Gustafson, the, the designer, messaged me when it came out to kind of to give me a key and said that the gunpoint had been an influence. And I was like, oh, thank you. But internally, I was thinking, what? <laughs> like how? <laughs> I really couldn't see any connection at all. But that must be it. Maybe it's it's about you know playing uh, your your contractors off against each other. But there's something else as well. There's the the way that you throw stuff and, you know, you pick up a massive barrel and you you throw it and it just goes miles. It's very (laughs) defenestration-y. It's also, it's a game game about breaking and entering and stealing an object from inside it. And like, and it's kind of puzzly. So like just a pacing and rhythm of it, it feels quite like gunpoint to me as well. Yeah. Awesome. Has anyone been playing anything else? I've been playing um been playing disc room. Oh yeah. Mm. I I started it and I died so fast and so consistently. <laughs> and I, I moved I moved to the next room and I died so fast and so consistently that I decided, okay, this might be too too severe for me. <laughs> I found it actually so uh, this is um a game from uh um four people. <laughs> says JW later of um, of uh, of of uh, beer. Um, um oh, so says Dose One is doing the music, very good music person. Kitty Callis, who worked with JW uh, on um, Minute, and Terry Velman. I think Terry Velman also worked on Minute. But anyway, so this is four people. Um, it is a game in which you are playing in this little arena. Um, your object is usually to survive as long as you can against lots of uh, discs, buzzsaw-style discs, which will kill you instantly if they touch you. Um, and it manages to find a huge amount of game within this tiny setting. Um, uh, so, like, it's sort of, you know, like it's sort of, I suppose, the, the, the base, it's like a, bullety hell kind of moving around and and you know trying to survive a game but as um in every level there are up to four exits you suppose you'd call them or sort of entrances um uh to uh levels which are next door because when you you press a button you can see a map and you can see where you are on this map and you um, unlock the doors leading into the um, adjacent rooms by succeeding at various challenges which are listed on the left hand side of the screen as you play and they could be well they're usually things like survive 10 seconds Um, but then there are also these different kinds of uh, challenges like um, uh, get a third uh, a third disc to appear um, and it's not immediately obvious under what circumstances a third disc will appear um, and there are basically it becomes a sort of almost a puzzle game uh, you know as you try to figure out the circumstances in which certain things will happen which will open up these doors um, uh, and that's really finds a huge amount of variety uh, as you play basically what is it running away from very, very frightening uh, buzzsaws. Um, there are levels in which I, it took me a while to notice, for instance, for example, um, that uh, in some levels there is a central area and the time, your timer only can, uh, goes up when you're standing inside it. Um, it took me even longer to realize that uh, when you use special abilities, which are granted to you over time, things like um, a dash, which will take you through um, uh, objects so you can avoid them. There's one that puts out a clone of yourself so that if either you or your clone get killed, uh, 
you will swap to the survivor um, to control it. So you're basically giving yourself like a little live extra life. Um, there's um, another one which consumes a nearby um, saw, uh, uh, thereby reducing the number of saws on screen. Um, but each of these, uh, when you use it, actually uh, stops the timer, or does it put the timer back? I can't quite sure. Can't quite quite remember. Anyway, it has a time penalty. You can use them as much as you like, which I thought was very very generous. But actually, oh, it, the penalty is time because of course it would be because time is the thing in this game. Um, and you know that's quite apart from the variety of the levels themselves. There are um, there is an enormous number of different kinds of buzz saws or saw blades or discs. Um, which uh, behave in different ways, some of which follow you around, some of them um, bounce randomly, some of them spawn little spuzz, you know, blades that come at you. Um, you've got to learn all of their patterns and, and work them out. There are big ones, there are small ones. Uh, there are some levels which are in the dark, um, so you can only see uh, a short way around you. There are some levels where everything blacks out for just a, like a second or half a second every two or three seconds. So you've got to remember what was coming towards you uh, and know where to go. There's one that's completely in the dark and I don't know how to survive more than four seconds in it. Um, <laughs> but, I, I, you know, this is a sort of game where, you know, you can figure it out if you give it enough time. There are bosses. It's a really neat game and I really like the way that um, that the map and the solving the the, the way to open the door that, that goes in the direction you want to go, uh, that's a really gives you an interesting thing to do and think about and structure to what is actually a fundamental, like a game about surviving lots of things coming at you for a few, for as many seconds as you can. And there are like scoreboard, you know, lead to leaderboards, um, of, you know, in your friends list on the left, right hand side of the screen. It's, it's a, it's a really neat game. Um, and I recommend it. What does a disc boss look like? They they are bigger, and you have to destroy them. Um, and so far, all of the discs that uh, all of the bosses I've come across, you destroy them by picking up um, an object which is dropped um, that they either drop behind them or spawn randomly on the screen. So it feels a little bit like Snake in the way that you know you're kind of going around the screen picking up objects, but sort of you know your uh, movement to that location is the challenge sort of thing so you're kind of dodging um discs on the way uh and you have to pick up enough maybe 10 maybe 20 uh so it destroyed it's good it's it's a i like the presentation is really good as well like the animation the uh you're this kind of yellow suited man uh, who sort of runs around and the, the animation on him is just, I don't know, it's very cartoony and very uh, expressive. Like, I can't really describe, you have to have a look at a video of it because it's it's kind of funny and very brutal at the same time. It's this cartoon <laughs> character in this awful situation, which is seeing himself <laughs> murdered by discs uh, all the time. Um, and it's some sort of game show kind of a setting as well. I don't, I don't know what's going on with that. Um, but Isn't it on Jupiter? It could be. <laughs> <laughs> Not that sure that answers anything. <laughs> Where does this sit for you on the, on the sort of devil daggers scale? 
It's yeah, that's interesting because it's not like that at all. Um, oh, it isn't. I mean, like on the surface, it is because you know, yes, you can max, you know, try and uh, eke better and better times out of out of a particular level. There are so many levels, and they all differ so much in the the types of discs that you're facing, um, and the specific challenge that you're setting yourself. You know, oh, I want to unopen that door, or you know, it. I I haven't felt the you know the kind of can i just survive a bit longer um uh urge in this game as much as that because there are so many levels partly you know whereas um, devil daggers obviously is is one level you know and therefore one time which you're you know anxiously trying to increase has anyone else been playing anything i've been playing uh root which is originally a board game um and is now on Steam uh, and iOS. And it's uh, does anyone is anyone familiar with the game in any form? No. It's um, a so the board is just like a forest, and it has about twelve different clearings on it, and all of the uh, everything's going to happen in those clearings, and the clearings are connected by certain clearings are connected by paths, and there are four factions sort of vying for control of the forest although the definition of control is very <laughs> variable because uh each faction is completely different to the others uh, like basically playing a different game so there's the the most recognizable one is the the cats um led by the marquis de cat <laughs> um who are just trying to build um they're sort of an economic faction and they they build sawmills and sawmills produce wood and how much wood they have is the only limit on how much they can build per turn and so if you have a shitload of wood you can build a shitload of recruiters and then when you have a shitload of recruiters you can build a shitload of cats or i guess recruit a shitload of cats and then you're just booming in a way that no one can stop you and you'll you'll conquer the whole place and they just get points for building stuff um so they don't even need to really defeat the other factions they can just if they built enough stuff they win um because they get victory points from that and then the Next most standard faction are the airy, who are the birds, and they also build buildings and have warriors and stuff like a uh, like a strategy game faction. But they have to commit uh, in advance to what they're going to do this turn and every turn from then on. So you start with um, uh, you pick a leader, and that determines what two things you're going to do every turn. And uh, the obvious one to pick is the leader that lets you move and build every turn. And um, those move and build, uh, they're called decrees. Um, you have committed to moving and building every single turn, but they are uh, those decrees are wild cards, which means it doesn't matter where you move and what where you build, as long as you can move and you can build. But if you ever can't do that for any reason, your government collapses. And every turn, you must commit to doing one more thing on top of all that and that stays forever and huh. so you are just forever it's obviously about foreseeing what you will and won't be able to do but you are forever being asked to overcommit. you just have to overcommit. there's no other choice you have to keep committing to more and more stuff every single turn and those wild cards you're not going to get a lot of those most of the other cards that you commit to this to make decrees are um uh they have a suit like there will be a, a mouse card or a fox card or a rabbit card uh, or one other and when you put when you use a fox card to decree that you're going to um, build every turn, you must build in a fox clearing, and there are only three of those on the whole board. 
And once you built one thing there, you can't build another thing there. It's gone. And if someone else has already built something there and you haven't destroyed it, then you can't build anything there. And uh, there are just so many reasons you might not be able to do that. Or if you just don't have a unit there. Or if you do have units, but someone else has more units, you can't build there. Or if you just built too much, you just don't have any more buildings left in reserve, then you can't build and your government collapses. <laughs> and so <laughs> it's this like... Uh, I'll get back to them because they're the faction I've been playing the most because they're they're kind of fascinating. Um, but then the other two factions are even more different to those. Um, uh, the next one is the Woodland Alliance, who are uh, they start with no buildings and no units, <laughs> but they are a revolution, and so they each turn they get to spread some sympathy, and they just pick other people's clearings and just say, okay, now we have a little a little mouse with a loudspeaker there, kind of yelling at, at your people uh, because they. Uh, to basically build sympathy for our for our cause that mouse can't attack and anyone can destroy it trivially but if anybody destroys any of their units um it triggers outrage which means they have to give up a card to you so basically they hand over some of their currency to you um and so basically you, you're not powerful but no one can really wants to fight you because it's it's a really bad look and so you keep spreading and the more uh, support you build the faster you can spread and the more points you get for it and eventually you can, if you have enough, you can trigger a revolt, which means you destroy everyone else's buildings in that clearing and you build your own building and, and you get a warrior. Um, and it has interesting mechanics like spreading sympathy by just spending cards is quite uh, cheap at first and then it gets more and more expensive. Eventually it gets very, very expensive to ever spread any more sympathy at all because you have to spend like three cards and they have to be the correct suit to match the clearing that you're trying to spread sympathy in. Uh, but your warriors which early on you have none of, and you're, as soon as you get those, you think, great, I've got a warrior, I can actually fight now. Um, those guys uh, can, one of their actions is to organize, which means they stop being a warrior and they just spread one sympathy, which early on seems rubbish because you lose your most valuable or your rarest resource to gain something that you could otherwise get quite cheaply. But as you spread more and more sympathy, it gets more and more expensive. And so actually towards the late game, it's a really good idea just to walk your warriors into clearings and just basically just like turn them into organizers so that they just spread sympathy instead. And if you're, if you've already got a load of sympathy, the more you have, the more points you get for the next, next sympathy point you, you spend, you acquire. Um, so, you know, you might get one victory point for your first sympathy point, but if you've already got six sympathy and you, you get your seventh, that's like four victory points and that can just win you the game right away. So each faction has those little like balancing acts. Um, and then the fourth one is the Vagabond, who is just one character. <laughs> it's just like an RPG character. He's just going around. Uh, he can delve into ruins to find items. He can trade with the other factions. Uh, although the way that works is that there's no agency in it for them. You just, if you decide to trade with them, um, you, uh, you use up one of your items, sort of, um, and they give you a card and they have no choice. Even if, you're, even if you've killed a bunch of their people, they still have to give you a card for it if you uh, choose to do this. And if you do that enough, then you become like allied with them um, or they, they sort of have um, forced to be allied parts, with basically. you. Yeah. Uh, like the, what the player themselves thinks is, is irrelevant that you've given them <laughs> enough stuff and got enough cards from them. Um, oh, sorry. I got that backwards. You give them a card and they give you an item uh, if they have one. If they don't have an item, you just wasted a card and you don't necessarily know if they do. Um, but yeah, again, it's not voluntary. They, um, they have to give it to you if they have it. And the items are things like... Um, Every sword you have means you can use that every turn to attack. So if you have three swords, you could you could fight three different groups of people in the same turn. Um, if you have a bunch of boots, you know, like in real life, the more boots you have, the further you can walk. Yeah. <laughs> and <Yeah>. so <laughs> if you have like five boots, then you can walk four five times as far as you normally can. Um, 
and then there's even like inventory capacity you need to find sacks to carry all this stuff and um then when you get in a fight instead of having hit points you know because you're only one unit every other unit dies in one hit it's just your your toughness is just how many units you have because they're only one unit instead their toughness is how many items they have and so every hit they take breaks one of their items and then they have to go into the forest and like spend a turn repairing it to use it again and if someone breaks your bag that's a real pain in the ass because if it that was what you needed to carry with other other items you just throw everything else away so it's this bizarre like everyone is playing a completely different game and those games are all trying to interact but in ways that that are so uh counterintuitive and that's both its strength because it's super interesting i mean it takes a long time to explain the game but i think by the time you've explained the game you've already made the case for why it's cool because <laughs> that's just inherently cool right that's um, incredible yeah but the the downside is that because they're all doing such different things, they all have different ways of getting victory points, and none of them are really about just killing enemies and and uh, getting a foothold and building buildings, which is sounds nice. It sounds cool that they they have these different political themes and they match those. But in practice, that means victory feels very arbitrary. It's just like someone puts down a building, and they're like, oh, technically I've won because that building got me enough victory points that I'm uh, that I win now. Or the vagabond, especially winning, is very strange. I can't even remember what all the different things that give him victory points. You can get them for doing quests and stuff, but it's all stuff that because it's not doesn't come at your expense. Really, you're not they're not destroying your buildings or killing your people. They're just going off and doing their thing, and you just have to make sure they don't do that too much. <laughs> and that's another problem for for learning the game is that you because it's four completely different games and how someone else wins has nothing to do with how good you are like you can be do, playing your game brilliantly but if someone else is playing their game better um they will win unless you also understand how to play their game because to stop them you need to fully understand all the mechanics that's going on in their world to know what your what actions of yours would stymie them mm. and the the one i've become kind of fixated on is the airy because i hate them <laughs> <laughs> that that thing of committing to I'm going to do all of this stuff every turn. First of all, I, I actually quit. I wouldn't say rage quit, but I, I exasperation quit the tutorial for the area. I couldn't make it through the tutorial. I was just like, what? I just can't. This is insane. You just It feels so bad to just be forced to make bad decisions all the time. And um, the, the, my relationship with it has got, kind of gone up and down because mechanically, game design-wise on that, on that level, I find them extremely frustrating and so just feel bad mechanics, just things that, that okay, that rule makes sense. And I, I guess I understand it if I can memorize all of them and keep them all in my head at once. But it feels so bad to have to make this this thing that's going to do this action that's going to cost me and uh, or just be told, no, you can't do this or you failed because of some really dry technical reason of just there aren't enough tokens or this thing happened at the same time or because of the order in which these things happen. Technically, even though you will have a building here, you don't have one yet. And so therefore you can't recruit, even though it's going to happen this turn, your whole government's collapsed. Uh, but at the same time, I'm sort of, I can't help but admire how on theme it is because this is the political <laughs> faction, right? There's the, the revolution faction, all their mechanics about revolution and sympathy and martyrdom and and uh, outrage and all this stuff. Uh, and then the political faction are all about like political gridlock and the drive to overpromise. Every they actually have different leaders. So when your government does collapse, it's not the game end of the game. It's just that leader is now out of power. You have to elect a new leader. You lose a load of victory points, and now you're you lose all your decrees. All that stuff you committed to is no longer on the agenda. Um, but some of the leaders are not very good. And um, I think when all four of them have been thrown into turmoil, you, you probably do lose at that point. I don't know. Think, I don't think you can re-elect disgraced leaders. <laughs> um, but yeah, just the, the, 
it pushing you to commit to stuff leads to these bizarre situations where, um, like I say, wild cards are pretty rare. And so each time you're committing, you're saying, I'm not just going to do this specific thing. I'm going to do it in this specific place. And so uh, every turn you're being asked to make that decision. What can I commit to that's really specific, but I'm, I can be sure I'll always be able to do? And early on, the, the most secure thing you can say is, I'll recruit in a fox clearing because I have a building in a fox clearing. And as long as that's always true, I'll always be able to recruit there until I eventually run out of, of reserve troops and then I'll fail for that reason. But that's a long way off. And so you start that way. Okay, I, well, now that you know, I'll definitely recruit in a fox clearing, then I can move and build wherever I like. And I move to a mouse clearing and I build in a mouse clearing. Well, now next turn, maybe I'll commit to recruiting in a mouse clearing as well because as long as no one destroys that, I will uh, be always be able to do that. And then you can only do that so often because if you have too much recruit going on, you're going to run out of reserves and your government will collapse for that reason. So now it's like, oh, well, maybe I can say I'll always move from a fox clearing because I'll always have troops there because I'm always recruiting now. And I, always, I have a building there so I can always recruit. Um, and I'll always move one of those troops. And then the, but then the tricky one is if you're not fighting, then you can't clear other people's buildings. And if you're not clearing other people's buildings, you can't build any more buildings. And you have to keep building because building is a, a, owning buildings is how you get victory points. And so eventually, I was I was in a situation where I had I had a load of different mouse clearings, had buildings in them, I was recruiting in them, and there were enemies in all of them. And I was never dealing dealing with enemies because I can't fight because I didn't commit to fighting. And to commit to fighting, I've got to say where I'm going to be fighting. And so I I, I took the risk of like I think I can probably say I'm always going to be fighting in the mouse clearings. So you you put a mouse card in the battle slot and you've decreed there will always be a war in mouse land, <laughs> and. For the first like three turns, um, sure, there's always a war in Mouseland. There's always someone in one of our mouse clearings that we can pick a fight with for no other reason, just to fulfill that that um, <laughs> uh, that requirement. And if there's a if the enemy have a mouse clearing, that means that's great because now we can move all our troops into the mouse clearing. And I'm just I have a license to wreck shit up. Like I'm really powerful. I have loads of units, uh, just not allowed to use them because I didn't commit to battling until now. <laughs> and then. Uh, slowly you know those battles dry up and you realize like oh shit i actually don't want i don't want to clear the enemies out of mouse clearings because i kind of need to keep fighting them like i don't really want to destroy my enemies anymore i kind of need them to be around so that i can keep fighting in mouse land like i said i always would um and i actually drew a card once that um craftable cards have like special effects and most of them are pretty weak but this one destroys all enemy units in all mouse clearings and this is like so conflicted to get this because this is a massive coup there's loads of enemy buildings in in mouse clearings ones that i don't own that i've never got close to there's loads of enemy units it would kill like eight cats destroy like four buildings uh completely cripple the alliance but i did say i would always fight in mouse land <laughs> and if i play this card <laughs> not only it doesn't just reduce my chances that that will always be true it, it's going to fail this turn if i play this card my government collapses right now because i cannot fight in a mouse clearing after playing this card and you have to play it before you do the battle phase and so i ended up just like i'm just gonna leave it i'm just not gonna destroy all of my enemies you know in one fell swoop just because i said i would always fight in mouse land <laughs> <laughs> i think we've all learned something important <laughs> i take you you're playing against the ai Yes, yeah, I should say that. Um, there's there's tutorials and then there's AI, various difficulties. I'm only ever playing against the easiest AI because, uh, because like I say, to, to win, you need to understand that the game everyone else is playing as well as the game you're playing. And I'm still, there's so much to learn and it's so tricky. That thing about the government collapsing, the number of victory points that costs you is dependent on how many 
uh, wildcard decrees are in your government. So all that stuff you've been building up, all that stuff you've been committing to, the more you commit to, the higher the cost of your government collapsing. So if your government collapses early, it's actually kind of fine because you'll lose two victory points. Um, as long as you've got like four victory points worth of stuff done, you're okay. You just have a new government. Um, but with my war in Mouseland government, there was so much invested in it that like I lose a, a just a catastrophic amount of um, victory points if this all comes tumbling down on me. And that also means that there's an incentive to make your your commitments more specific because those ones don't cost you anything when your government collapses. It's only the wild cards. So the more flexible your government is, the more expensive it is when it falls apart. Is it a static board that you're playing on? Yeah. It's in the board game itself, it, you know, the board is exactly the same every time. Um, right. In the, well, I think that's true. Um, in the digital version, I noticed there's a little checkbox for if you want to randomize which clearings are which. So the board would still be the same layout, oh. but you'd just change which one's a fox clearing and which one's a mouse clearing and that kind of stuff. Right. Because I, 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 I'm, my question is it's sort of where does the, the variety of the game come from session by session? Because if the board's static, then is it just emerging from the randomness of the, the cards you get? Or is it, or is are people's different objectives just so complex that the interaction between them creates very different games each time? Yeah, it's mostly that complexity, I think. There are some... Um, I think the so in the in the digital version the area just start in a random place. I didn't choose where they start, and that I think is determined by a card draw in the board game because it's it would depend on what um, uh, you know the suit of a card you draw. I think because I notice you always have in your starting hand a card that matches the the suit of the place that your base is your first base is. Um, the cats have to place a bunch of buildings right at the start, but they have free reign over that. So I imagine it's probably like the airy go first and they they are placed randomly. Then the cats are going to decide where they go based on that. And then the Woodland Alliance are going to place their sympathy based on that. Um, and yeah, it does. It definitely doesn't feel samey in that way. I played it again this morning because I, uh, I thought I'd probably talk about it and I wanted to refresh my memory a bit. And I played as the airy again and I was looking at it and thinking, okay, now that I understand this, I'm really comfortable and familiar with it. I actually, I can see, I committed to moving and building on this turn and I can see I can move to a mouse clearing and I can build there right away this turn. So I know in advance I will have a mouse clearing this turn. So actually I can commit to recruiting in a mouse clearing. Brilliant. And I clicked commit and uh, the very first thing that happened is you can't build in a mouse clearing, your government's collapsed <laughs> because the move and build <laughs> phase happened after the recruit phase. So at the time the recruit phase happens, I don't have, I, I can't do it. And I've had governments collapse for like, because I'm too powerful, I've got too much stuff. And so even though I've secured, I've made sure that I've destroyed the enemy building in this clearing and I've got troops in there and I control it, I have majority control. Uh, I can't build a building because I just don't have enough building tokens. Like in the in the physical board game, there's only a certain number of actual physical build, board game tokens that you would have. And once you run out of those, if you can't build for that reason, that's also a failure on your part and the government collapses. <laughs> it's just, oh my God, at every turn, it's so fucking like pedantic it's just a, uh, actually actually you can't do that actually you can't do that and i think playing the digital version has exacerbated that because of course the digital version is always right and it knows all of the rules and it will call you on every single thing if i was learning this with a friend especially if you're learning with friends who haven't played before and you're all learning it together at the same pace i think you would all be doing stuff that is illegal moves because there's so much that's intuitive that isn't allowed like even things like moving between two clearings that are really close to each other that are connected by a river well the river's not a path so you can't actually do that that those clearings are not connected whereas two clearings way across the map are connected with a really long path and yeah the digital version is just forever 
you've just bombarded all these reasons. Oh, no, you can't move there. No, you can't move there. Oh, you can't do this. No, no, that's a failure. No, you can't do that. And it's, it's so irritating. Does it have a, does it have a, um, a multiplayer mode? Uh, yeah, I think, so I'm playing on iPad mostly. I got it on Steam as well. I can't remember about online multiplayer on Steam. I assume it has that. Um, and then on iPad, you can just do like pass and play as well. I love how clever and brutal this all sounds, given that the art for the game seems to be cute cats and raccoons yeah. wearing <laughs> neckerchiefs and playing harmonicas and in a kind of like cutesy forest world. I would never have right. guessed from looking at the screenshots that this is what the game was. Yeah, and really political as well. Um, it's it's fun on the, the digital version has a difficult challenge to solve, I think, because what's happening is pretty dark. Like the when you spread sympathy and you put a little mouse with a megaphone down there and an enemy just fucking kills it. <laughs> like they're just <laughs> slaughtering. Like it looks like a child. Like it's a <laughs> tiny little cute mouse. And so it's, it's a very cartoony death. It's sort of a big, you know, cloud of dust and then it falls over and it's got X's on its eyes and stuff. <laughs> it's like, mm. oh God. <laughs> it's not the only game uh, with this sort of uh, aesthetic. There seems to be a, b- a bunch of sort of Red Wall inspired games popping up at the moment. There's Banners of Ruin as well. I don't know if you played that, which is a, a card game where various forest creatures horribly shank each other. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think I saw this. It looks really nice. Yeah, it sounds a bit like it's in the same lineage as. Uh, so just before just before the first lockdown, I got um, a copy of the Dune board game, which is mm. very old now. Um, and it has some of the same flavor of this kind of these vastly uh, asymmetric factions where the game is like the when you're first learning the game, you are continually surprised by what the other players are able to do and them unexpectedly winning because you didn't know some little thing about what they're able to do. But then lockdown happened and I've only managed to play once. So that was actually Marsh and I played. Um, I think we played twice. And uh, I won unexpectedly, accidentally, both times, very quickly. (laughs) So I'm happy never to play it again. (laughs) I am the master of Arrakis. (laughs) I'm I'm definitely, I definitely love the idea of these kind of these games in which you're faced by these completely, seemingly bizarre um, actions by the other players. I just checked, and it does have online multiplayer on Steam. Maybe we should have a go. It might also be a miserable experience. I watched um, uh, Quentin reviewed it for uh, Shut Up and Sit Down, and um, he had a, quite a similar arc, actually, despite he was learning it with friends who were all learning at the same time. And um, they were extremely excited early on, just sort of because uh, there's so much to discover, and you end every game thinking, oh, next time I want to do this, and then we're going to try this, and all that stuff. And then he said that once you all do learn it, it becomes, I mean, yeah, the same issue I did where, where, you need to be playing everyone else's games as well as your game all on top of each other to prevent that victory track thing um, losing you the game. And then he said, once you do get your head around that and you do know everybody's factions, um, it sort of started to feel like work. It's just very, you just got to run mm. through these mechanics and exhaustively figure out everything. Um, and it started to feel a lot drier. I think that maybe um, in a similar vein, Cosmic Encounter is a game which has very a, a great deal of asymmetry, but it sort of gets around this by being the possibility space being so huge mm. that uh, you can't possibly play each other's games because you're never... In fact, it's hidden which faction and which rule set people are actually playing. Yeah. Um, 
so so it sort of gets around that but also doesn't get around the fact it often feels very arbitrary but it's also <laughs> it sort of it makes a feature of its arbitrariness yeah i think also it's it's core mechanic is actually very simple or like you know it's like a you know the bidding game is is simple but um but kind of nuanced but um it, there isn't you know the other stuff is on top of it like there's all this sort of mad spiraling logic that lies on top of it which is exciting to explore and mm. discover shall we do some questions from questions hell yes hell yes <laughs> the first question we have isn't a question at all uh, but possibly uh, a simple apology i made a mega mix of alex's twitter handle attempts is the subject line uh from aiden uh, the body is, all I can say is, I'm sorry. And attached is a remarkable MP3 that we cannot play for you for copyright reasons. <laughs> <laughs> but we can probably uh, upload it somewhere and link it in the show notes. So there is another question. There is a question. We have questions from questions. A Monster Hunter question from Robert. Uh, he says, hi, pod team. My best friend bought me Monster Hunter World on Steam, reigniting my passion for the beautiful, obtuse mess of systems that is the MH series. A day later, my first child was born. Oh, now I'm carving up Rathians whilst bouncing Rowan on my knees. My question is, what questionable gaming choices have your friends encouraged you into? Thanks for the pods. They're a lifesaver working from home. <laughs> that is not a good game to start with a newborn <laughs> there is this like there is a sweet spot um why not why not well well because it's it's totally um it's totally over involving <laughs> and there's so much to do uh, just at a time when you're kind of you don't really have space in your life for such a thing but um but i think there is a sweet spot actually like a sort of a month or two into the baby baby's arrival where you have you're just sort of sitting for a long time, sort of milk, you know, sort of feeding them and and whatnot, which which actually games fits quite nicely into. But yeah, newborn is not a good time for Monster Hunter. Mm. We've got um, in terms of <laughs> personal games that friends uh, make us play, uh, um, we've got a a whole load of them from from our friend Owen. At the moment, he's um, he's petitioning. Have uh, you had this, Marsh? Uh, World of Warcraft. No, I think he knows he's onto a, a loser there with me. <laughs> Fallow ground. Uh, before <laughs> yeah. that, it was Elite Dangerous. Yeah. Did you get that one? Well, again, no. I. Well, maybe he did for a while, but I, I don't have a, a VR set headset, and I think uh, that's probably the main draw for for Owen when it comes to Elite, right? Now he just goes out and he goes into deep, 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 deep space on his own. And it takes, he's bought himself an enormous um, uh, throttle and, and joystick and whatnot with all lights on and stuff um, that, that help him go into space, I believe. I think that's the technical term. <laughs> it's all very, it's, it's very, it's very him. But you, the danger with Owen, um, all of the games that he wants to play tend what well, they tend to be good but the problem is you know that if you open yourself to his passion for this game <laughs> uh he will lose his passion just as you really want to play it with him <laughs> <laughs> and that is the danger <laughs> no specific person pressured me to get four guys but 
enough people were talking about it that I felt pushed to get Four Guys, and then I've never played Four Guys. <laughs> 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 and now the moment is very much past. I don't think anyone's talking about Four Guys anymore. Do you play any games with uh, your your wee ban bouncing on your knee, Graham? I've showed him Spelunky a couple of times recently because he's got. I had. He's not the... that wee anymore, is actually, is he? No, he's four years old, so he's oh, yeah, yeah, he's 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 old enough now to be GTA to, now to understand what games are and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> but I used to have. I say I used to have because Ira has them now. But I used to have Spelunky one figurines. Um, <laughs> I can't remember if I've told, said this on the pod before, and so they became Ira's toys essentially quite early on, and so he's been playing with a little Splunky man and a little shopkeeper with a shotgun, um, and the damsel and that sort of stuff for years. For you know, so he recognizes the characters in the game, except we created our own lore for those <laughs> characters. Could we, call, we didn't. We got. We didn't want to call him Splunky Man and Shopkeeper, and so Splunky Man became Spencer. Spencer Splunky, and the shopkeeper is his dad. <laughs> it's uh, because you look at the little figurines; they look kind of similar. Um, so I know this is. I've I've shown him Splunky too, basically, and he recognizes the characters. Uh, but what's he make of you brutally killing? Well, <laughs> yeah, that's that's where I was going with this. After a little after a little while, his his mother suggested that maybe he shouldn't watch Splunky anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a newfound soft spot for the shopkeepers and Splunky. Ever since there's just a little sound effect that you get if you buy everything in their shop. I think they have a few of them, but one of them is just them going, okay. <laughs> just saying okay in like a sort of chuffed way that is really adorable. <laughs> Mike from California uh, says, Dear CNC Musing Factory, the Talk of Paradise Killer is an island of mythical weirdos in a pseudo-Miami where fantastic architecture is juxtaposed with mundane buildings. Led me to try the game. I'm enjoying my visit. Thanks for the tip. I lived in Miami long ago, and the game presents a poetically accurate Miami beach. Mundane warrens of low-rise apartments and ordinary folk amid the towering presence of self-imposed god-beings of impossible buffness and fancy dress. <laughs> but the gem-driven fast travel system in Paradise Killer, not in the real Miami, does, as described, stink, turning an appropriate op optimization of the island's UI into a boring resource sink. I'm still hoping there's something interesting hidden in its design for me to uncover. My question... What games have fast travel that's interesting beyond skipping space faster by portable, by portal or mountable? In some books and shows, you can go mad or get lost in the warp between worlds. Transporters malfunction. In Final Fantasy XII, fast travel from ports involves boarding a hotel ship. You are free to extend travel indefinitely by exploring the craft or simply tell the game you're ready to exit the ship at your destination. EVE Online fast travel carries the risk of PvP ambush at the exit, encouraging elaborate preparation. What are examples of interesting systems integrated into travel, pre, during, or post? Thanks for the pods, Mike. Yeah, I don't have one that's like um, super interesting, but I do like... It's funny because I don't like the Paradise Killer system, but I do like in Horizon that it's... a uh, it's an item that you have to buy. You have to sort of buy a provisions pack, basically, to last you the journey. And I like that that theming of it is very nice, and just the fact that it it's a small cost. You you can craft these things. Actually, it's not uh, it's not something you buy. Um, you craft them out of like animal meat. So you got to go hunting for a bit, and if you don't have the resources for it, then you're encouraged to um, to make the journey. And that game it works really well because there's just a gentle push not to fast travel everywhere all the time. 
And that game definitely benefits from just making the journey yourself and actually uh, traversing the land because it's one of the few where that, that is really fun. Hmm. Um, I had this thought uh, playing Watch Dogs Legion because um, it's set in London and the underground is just a fast travel system in that. And you just literally, from the map, no matter where you are, you can just click on an underground station and you're just teleported there and that's it. And it really feels like a missed opportunity because mm. the underground is such a core part of like the London experience. And I know yeah. that modeling the whole thing would be uh, perhaps excessive for something that, that will still ultimately amount to a fast travel system. But I, I, what I wish is that you just kind of cut to you like in a train carriage looking up, you know, at the top of the carriage, they have a bunch of ads and then sometimes a map, usually just of the route you're on. But I would make it a map of the whole of the underground and just make that like a little almost a mini game where you just have to figure out what route are you going to take to get to where you're going? Because that's such a London thing is just... Um, oh, yeah thinking okay i need to get to waterloo but i'm not that's only on this line and I'm, i don't have this line at this station which one do i need to go where do i need to get off and change and that's uh, that's super mundane it wouldn't be like a back of the box feature or anything but i just think that would be a really nice little bit of busy work to do in between getting somewhere uh, yeah it's a really nice idea yeah i mean they did a, uh, they didn't have a any kind of mini game um uh in the spider-man game uh came out recently for ps4 um but your fast travel is is contextualized as you being on on their underground system, and it has these nice little sort of um, interstitial uh, video clips of of Spidey hanging out on stuck to some part of the train, um, <laughs> checking his phone. And there's uh, it's, there's not there's nothing to it. It doesn't really give you a flavor of what it's like to to navigate an underground system, which I think is which I agree with you is sort of carries such a lot of personality with it that it seems. Uh, a missed opportunity but it's still nonetheless they're just those short clips just give you a sort of they are, i don't know there's just something about the sound of kind of rattling train carriages and the, mm. the screech of it going around the the, uh, the track that that um that was pretty evocative even if it didn't in- involve any kind of interaction i quite like that yeah but relatedly in fact to uh watchdogs and travel um james writes in uh with what he describes as more of a transmission of feelings and thoughts with an appended question, um, which I'll uh, slightly synopsize. He's been playing Watch Dogs Legion and uh, because he lives close by in deep, dark Essex, it's a city that he has a strong connection to. Um, and at the beginning of the game, you, uh, you're walking across the street from an underground station, uh, which is Brewer Street. Um, which is a fictional station, but it immediately resonated with him because there is um, a clothes shop that he likes to visit on that road in its real-life counterpart. Um, I then made my way around the corner to Piccadilly Circus and Regent Street, totally struck by how real this version of London seemed and how I could use real-life knowledge of streets to find my way. I spent the next two hours walking around the city, visiting areas that I've also visited in real life, each time being totally blown away with how real they seemed. The sounds and sights brought back many fond memories, and the feel of the place seemed authentically British. The sound of road crossings beeping is particularly evocative sound of a city. Fellow Brits will attest to this, I'm sure. At the risk of an extended wank about the minutiae of UK cities, my question is this. What is the most evocative, recognisable, or real-seeming environment you've experienced in the game? It could be a place that you've visited, lived, or simply know from seeing pictures or through other media. P.S. Dear Ubisoft, please set Watch Dogs 4 in Chelmsford, my home city. (laughs) I did um, my first experience of this really was going to Liberty Island for the first time after having played it so many times in Deus Ex um, 
and I until I got there, I didn't realize that like the place, the pier you start on in Deus Ex is a real place, and that that's what the the start of Liberty Island looks like. That's that's how you arrive at it in real life too, um, and that was a cool feeling. That is obviously the the disconnect between what, how it looks in the game and how it looks in real life is not uncanny. <laughs> it's, there's definitely differences, <laughs> uh, particularly because of the limitations of the technology. And I have been, uh, you know, probably the, the most um, uh, clearest example of this is for Watch Dogs Legion for me, because um, just because most games that I play a lot are set in America, if anywhere, and I don't know many American cities that well. Actually, I had a bit in Watch Dogs 2 just with San Francisco, because I go there for GDC, um, but not not to the point that you really know it. And London, um, spend a lot more time in in general. And uh, it's fun to visit the bit around Resd. Actually, I haven't found Tobacco Dock, which is where Resd usually takes place. And um, I got as far as uh, like Googling on Google Maps, like how do I get from this station to Tobacco Dock in real life? And then trying to, I was going to try and replicate that route in game, but then I got distracted by something um, in game uh, and lost my train of thought. So I don't know if you can actually, if it's, if the fidelity is up to there, but I do, I did find where I stay for Resd. Um, there's this hotel by um, Tower Bridge, and it was actually it was cool just to recognize it and realize, oh, I know how to get. Like if I walk down the waterways here, this is roughly the right direction for Resd. Although, as I say, I never never <laughs> made the journey. Um, but it was also cool just to like uh, explore that area in a much more freeing way than you can in real life. It was just nice to like. Um, you know, oh, that interesting building over there. What is that actually like? And, you know, can I go inside it? And can I hack it and murder people? <laughs> <laughs> I think the closest for me to that experience is, well, there's not that many games set in Scotland, but um, Edinburgh pops up in quite a few racing games. So mm. I, I can't remember if it was Project Gotham Racing 1 or 2, which had oh, yeah. e- Edinburgh in it. And at the time, that game seemed i'm sure if i looked back at it now it would be incredibly crude but at the time it seemed so accurate and such a detailed recreation of um, princess street the main the main drag through the city where you've got shops at one side and then the castle on, on the left and the gardens um and i've done that again quite recently because it's in forza horizon 4 is it yeah um Again, it's it's there's a recreation of Edinburgh in there that you can race through at great speed, but I can spend a lot of time just stopping and looking at shops and buildings that are familiar from my youth. Is that actually a recreation of Edinburgh? Because I, I thought it was just like a, a pseudo-Edinburgh, Edinburgh-like expanse. A slice. It's, it's a pseudo-Edinburgh. There's parts of it which are pretty close to actual Edinburgh, but it is shrunken in the extreme and so it's like it's it's much less close it sounds like than watchdogs legion is for example i think actually for me the um a game that's evoked a place well the thing is i don't think it has evoked a place and over the years i i I feel like i need to return to my feelings about its its evocation of place in a more suspect way uh which is far cry 2 um which is set in a sort of conglomeration of different uh, African um, environments. And I think, although cause, because uh, I've, I've been to Africa and I've travelled around quite a lot of um, the uh, eastern coast of it, um, I've seen quite a lot of these environments. 
And so for me, it feels very uh, evocative of place, but actually what I'm experiencing is evocative of tourism um, of those places. And it's not the the way that they have been combined and, and smushed together probably is very unrealistic. <laughs> and uh, and perhaps people living in those places would find it uh, quite patronizing that a large number of different locales have been smushed together as sort of an identikit version of of uh, Africa. Does that make sense that I should feel strangely conflicted about this now? <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it mm. makes me slightly uncomfortable just that it is, uh, you know, an African country without sort of mentioning, like, mm. if, I'm, if I remember rightly, they don't give it a name or anything. It's just, and yeah. obviously I'm fine with th- things being set in fictional countries and things sort of, you know, you could set a game in, in a European country and m- make up a name for it or whatever. Uh, like the Princess Diaries, <laughs> totally legit. Um, but uh, when you don't name it, and when it's in a place that that is very often mischaracterized by people in the West as sort of grouped together as all one thing, you know, um, mm. uh, I used to, a, a mildly annoying habit of mine was I would ask people what the biggest country in the world is, because almost nobody knows the right answer to that. And a load of people said Africa, which is not a country. <laughs> and it's just frustrating. <laughs> yeah. And it came up in Far Cry 2. Um, yeah. There was, uh, yeah, some people would just say, you know, it said in Africa as if that was specific enough. And of course, Africa is hugely diverse. Paddy from Dublin writes, Hi, what podcast do you enjoy while doing the mundane tasks of cleaning and being locked in? What podcast do you also appear on? Where else can I hear Graham Smith? Question mark, <laughs> exclamation mark, question mark. Kind <laughs> regards, a very excitable Paddy from Dublin. Um, there's nowhere else you can really hear me other than here. I commit myself exclusively to the creating so, crowbar that's a and, lie and don't i don't i don't even talk to other human beings in my life as alex said <laughs> if, there's, if there's not a, if there's not a podcast mike what's the point um occasionally occasionally i fill in um for an absentee on the rock paper shotgun podcast and uh, i don't edit it anymore but i did for a long time and it's it's very good and in fact it's a podcast that i listen to while doing mundane tasks like the washing up um so yeah, if you like silly chat about PC games, which I assume if you're listening. And crabs. <laughs> and crabs. There's lots about crabs. Nate has a growing menagerie of aquatic life in his house. His house seems to contain, I think, 14, he said, fish tanks at this point. Good <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he excuses himself by saying some of them are small, but... <laughs> um, but yes, it, it's a it's a good PC gaming podcast. I think it is. It is very good, very entertaining to hear Matthew Castle and uh, Alice bicker over what the definition of autumn is. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> the autumnal <laughs> games episode is a is a cracker. Oh, it's, it's not. It's, what, what's so good about it is they they uh, they completely fall out over the definition of autumn, and then for some reason they decide to do a podcast the next week about the definition of winter. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, fantastic it's really good value <laughs> one of my uh one of my go-tos is something that tom s recommended i don't know if he recommended it on this podcast or just uh, in real life which does exist outside of his podcast for me um <laughs> uh this paranormal life which is uh two people discussing paranormal uh stories uh with 
Um, it's a strange mix of they're obviously it's a comedy podcast and they they're just bantering about it in a way that that's very funny. Um, but they they both my guess is they're both skeptics, but they at the same time the whole spirit of the podcast is to decide whether or not this thing is real. And uh, you know about thirty percent of the time they decide it is real, and so they have some kind of threshold for like does this story add up? Is there you know some kind of evidence for it? Um, but most of the fun of it is is just them recreating these completely flimsy absurd stories um in a way where they're giving it their all they're really trying to imagine how this happened but um uh it's just inherently funny and it's a good one because um there are some podcasts like i really like uh phoebe reads a mystery which is phoebe judge from the criminal podcast reading mystery novels um but it's too it requires too much focus to do it while i'm like playing a game or or um certain other tasks where I want something going on so that I'm not completely bored, but also I'm going to miss about 40% of what's happening. <laughs> and so uh, this paranormal life is a good one because you can uh, you can safely miss a chunk of it and still enjoy the rest. I want to recommend another podcast, actually, because I love podcasts and I'm filled with podcast recommendations at all times. Um, but it's Hey Lesson, which is a new podcast yeah. started by Brendy Caldwell, who used to be on the RPS podcast and used to work for Rock Paper Shotgun and has done stuff um, audio-wise for Shut Up and Sit Down before as well. Um, but Hey Lesson is a video game podcast where he interviews experts from outside of games um, to learn things accidentally through the medium of games i'm explaining this badly but for example he did a Baldur's gate 3 themed episode where he spoke to a professor of infectious diseases about brain parasites um because Baldur's gate 3 is a game in which your your brain is infested by whatever those things are called a a mind flare is that what they're called Mm. within the yeah yeah you know and he spoke to like a I think like a UN expert in space about the inevitability of space war in response to Star Wars squadrons. And he's just done one episode this week, which is about can hackers defeat fascism, where he speaks to a woman who's written books about hackers um, in relation to Watchdogs Legion. And it's just, it's just fun, light. You'll learn something. It's good. I've listened to quite a lot of the fault line recently, which is not really in the, in, in the vein of, wacky hijinks that you can casually listen to while vacuuming but it is a very good podcast uh with david dimbleby going over basically the uh cases belli uh for the uh second iraq war um and it's it's really good it has some uh, excruciatingly tonally wrong adverts in the middle of it for for example (laughs) razors uh, with the <laughs> with the producer, who presumably David Dimble, who'd be himself, wouldn't lower himself to um, shilling for <laughs> these products. So the producer has to come on and says, "Oh, I've been uh, a lot of uh, late nights and uh, early mornings doing this podcast, so I'm glad that I bought these fine razors uh, to keep my face trim." And you're like, "Oh, fucking hell! Where's the skip button?" Anyway, um, but the actual podcast, once you get past all that awfulness is is really good uh i I was old enough to have lived through this um it's it's really interesting hearing something from essentially i guess my childhood being re-litigated in in real kind of uh detail and insight and he has because david dimbleby is is uh you know quite the figure in uh uk political journalism he's able to get amazing access he talks to blair and uh alistair campbell and all kinds of other movers and shakers who who were involved in it is that a bbc one no, it's by a, a podcast network I hadn't heard of before. Called something, something else. else. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. And every time Dumblebee has to pronounce it something without the G, I feel like he's angry about it. <laughs> he's he's not a man who who tarries with apostrophes. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Isn't something else of um, a production company who made loads of like make loads of programs like for for the BBC in particular. So obviously this is them going going alone. They also do. Um... Uh, David Tennant's podcast. David Tennant does a nice interview podcast um, oh, yeah. where he just interviews his, his celebrity chums and they all come across as lovely. Um, oh, that's really and, good. That's really nice. But that um, the something else thing, his reading of that is also weird because that podcast is a... So uh, with context, it makes sense, but it's a something else and no mystery production. And he says that in the first like eight times I heard it, I'm just, that is just word salad. <laughs> David Tennant does a podcast with, is there something else in no mystery production? Like what yeah, the fuck I, is that sequence of words? <laughs> There's too much to listen to. Oh, I feel a bit overwhelmed because oh, I don't have time. We've Girl, gone too far with this question. We've answered it well, too well. <laughs> we've answered it too well. Because like, obviously because, you know, the UK lockdown has, uh, has just um, switched on and um, I don't have the, going out of the house and listening to the podcast thing which is my most my 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 podcast listening uh routine don't do don't really listen to them around the house mm. is this a sign that you don't pull your weight in the housework it is no i i do oh <laughs> uh, i do i do uh listen to podcasts while doing that um housework um but my wife doesn't like me doing that because she means she can't talk to me while I'm doing the hoovering, uh, which I thought the hoovering would be the thing that shows you that you're not meant to talk to me because I'm <laughs> making a loud noise. But I, I'm told that isn't right. Is this why you've taken to parping the Vuvuzela as you vacuum? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's a great mental image. <laughs> Those are all the questions that we uh, have time for this week. If you'd like to send us a question, you can send them to questions at creightoncrowbar.com or you can tweet us at creightoncrowbar that we won't read the tweet. Um, all these recordings are uploaded as videos to YouTube. You can find other videos by us uh, at youtube.com slash creightoncrowbar. Uh, thanks, as always, to our Patreon backers. You can back us as well, if you wish, at patreon.com slash creightoncrowbar or you can simply join our wonderful nurturing discord community uh the link for which is on our website creightoncrowbar.com i've been marsh davis i've been uh, i've been Tom francis <laughs> <laughs> it's caught unawares sorry i could have teed that up a little better <laughs> uh i've been alex wiltshire and i'm going to attempt to spell my uh my twitter handle r o T. I've completely. I've already what? thought my way out of even the first few letters. R two R That's not even a letter. You're, you're talking over. I was going. I've. I'd gotten started there. R o t a t i r. For God's sakes. And then, then, there. There you go. And I'm. And I'm Graham Smith. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. Everybody. <laughs>